Good morning, Northwest. It's, been, it's great to see you here this morning. Glad that you are here and uh, really believe that the Lord has you here for a purpose. And so again, I want to welcome you here. Glad that you're here. If you're here visiting with us for the very first time, we're grateful that you're here. Hopefully you've been welcomed and you've met some new friends. And again, uh, we welcome you here, whether you're a regular attender, a member, or you're visiting here with us for the very first time. We've got a special guest in just a few minutes that's going to be bringing the word this morning. I'll introduce him in just a couple of minutes. First and foremost, next Sunday, very, very important. You nor I will gather here in this building. We're going to White Oak Shelter at Jordan Lake to have church at the lake. Hello? Come on. Okay. So we're going to worship at the lake. It's going to be at 10 o'clock a.m. at the White Oak Shelter. You are going to bring a side dish. We'll have hamburgers and hot dogs that we will cook while we are there. Bring sunscreen. Bring a chair. This little little piece, this little announcement here reminds you of all that you need to bring and the, sort of the directions of how to get there. And also it has a link for you to register. We really want to have a head count for who's coming and we'd love for you to be there. It's going to be a great time to sort of celebrate our summer and going into back to school. Okay, so um, so we really want to celebrate together, and we would love for you to be there. So make sure you understand that we will not be here next Sunday. We'll be at the White Oak Shelter at Jordan Lake. So go ahead and remember that. Also, um, there is an open house tonight, or excuse me, the 21st, sorry, the 21st, for the Hutchersons. If you've not had a chance to get to know Caleb and Nicolette, their, their kids, then we would love for you to get to know them. That's going to be on the 21st. We want to make sure that you know that after the service, see them, see us for a couple of more details. But we really would love for you to be able to get to know them, hear about more about their ministry and all that's going on with the Hutchersons, okay, as they are our missionaries serving in Beirut, Lebanon. And Caleb will be speaking here in just a minute. Um, one other thing, too. We at Northwest, we do communion every single week. We do it every Sunday. One of the things, we, the, the reason that we do that is because there is no greater message. There's actually one message in the Bible. And that message is the, is the gospel. It is a declaration that King Jesus came to give us life and to save us from our sins. And when we gather together as a body, it's an opportunity for us to remember that. Now, obviously we've, we do communion every week and I wanna remind you of the freedom that you have to come to one of the tables at the end of the service. We have two songs that will be played. And during those two songs, you are free to come. What I love about coming to the table is that each and every week, when we do it this way, I get to gather with my family. I get to gather over there, and we get to look each other in the face and talk about the greatest gift that's ever been given, and that's Jesus who died for our sins. And what we want to do is we want to encourage you. You can take it by yourself. You can grab another family from your life group or not from your life group. You can grab it with your own family, and you are free to lead in that time as the Lord leads you. We want you to have freedom to just come over to the side, take the elements, remember that his body was given to us, 
that the blood is a symbol of the new covenant. We don't have to sacrifice goats or bulls anymore. Amen? We have Jesus who died for our sins. And so it's a great way to celebrate that. So at the end of the service, again, remember, you're invited to come to the table, to come with other people, to come by yourself, or just being able to lead uh, your family through that time of taking the bread and uh, drinking the juice, okay? All right, now it's time for us to Northwest Kids. It is your time to get out of here and be sent. You are sent, and the rest of us stand up, say hi to those around you, and we'll get started here in just a minute. All right, good morning. If you can go ahead and uh, take your seats. Folks, go ahead and take your seats. Yes, we have an awesome, awesome privilege this morning. Um, for the last couple of weeks, we've had Caleb and Nicolette Hutcherson and their family with us. And Caleb's going to come and he's going to bring the word. Um, you know, this, it's, I'm reminded that for the last 15 years, we have been in partnership with you mm. in Beirut, Lebanon, and doing and seeing that all that God has done for you. Yeah. I think in that time, you now have finished your PhD. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And continue to teach. Hey, come on. <laughs> come on. And the many people that have been helped through Safe Haven, and so it's been a privilege to have your family with us. Look forward to what God's going to say through you. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Let's hear it for Caleb. Okay. Thank you. Good morning. Um, it, it really is a privilege for us to be here with you this morning. We really are thankful for your support and care and your partnership with us over, I mean, the 15 years that we've been in Beirut, Lebanon, uh, Northwest has been partnering with us in that ministry. And we really do consider the ministry and work that we're involved with there uh, a function of a partnership with uh, Northwest. So it's your ministry in Beirut that we get to participate in. Um, this morning, I would like, I want to weave together a reflection on one of the more difficult parables of Jesus. Some would say it's actually the most difficult parable of Jesus from Luke 16. Um, so we'll read that in a second, but we're going to look at this difficult parable of Jesus, and I want to weave it together with a story, a true story from Beirut from this last year that um, really gripped the entire country of Lebanon, it sort of encapsulates the crisis that we've been in over the last four years. Um, and this particular story really helped me to make sense of this difficult passage in a new way. It shed some light on it. And so what we'll do is we'll kind of weave these stories together uh, in, in our time together this morning. It's what I'd like to do. So if you have your Bibles, I think it'll be on the screen as well. You can open your Bible or your holy telephones, uh, whichever you have. You can open to Luke 16. We're going to look at the section of verse 1 to verse 13, this whole uh, parable uh, that Luke records for us. It reads like this. Um, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who was informed of accusations that his manager was wasting his assets. So he called the manager in and said to him, what is this I hear about you? 
turn in the account of your administration because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what should I do since my master is taking my position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am too ashamed to beg. I know what to do so that when I'm put out of management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he contacted the master's debtors one by one. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And the man replied, a hundred measures of olive oil. The manager said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? The second man replied, a hundred measures of wheat. The manager said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries than the people of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by how you use worldly wealth so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into eternal homes. The one who is faithful is very, in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will entrust you with, the true, with true riches? If you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us in your study. Help us in our study to love you more truly and to follow you more faithfully. Amen. Well, now to switch to the true story uh, from, uh, from Beirut this last year. The woman was desperate. Her sister was back in the hospital again. The cancer was spreading fast and she needed uh, surgery immediately. But because of the financial crisis, the hospital wouldn't even begin until she paid in cash. Since late 2019, Lebanon has been suffering a severe financial crisis. Uh, since then, the Lebanese currency has lost about 98% of its value. Um, against the, the US dollar. The crisis really started, it took hold when for some really complicated reasons, which are super interesting, but it's not our focus, Lebanese banks ran out of cash to give people back uh, when they wanted to go withdraw money. When you wanted to take money out or transfer money out, the banks didn't have money left. Most people's regular life savings literally were stuck in the banks when they closed and wouldn't allow people to take their money out anymore. But if you were wealthy and well-connected, um, you could still get your money out. You could transfer it. Sally was neither of those. When Sally, uh, even though she had enough money on paper to be able to pay for her sister's surgery, the bank would not give her her money. And without some kind of rule or law in place, uh, what the bank is doing or was doing was illegal. This is illegal. But without, uh, but without some type of rule or law or some kind of, of structure, they continue to do this. And this has been the situation in Lebanon since 2019. Banks have been working together to severely limit what most people can withdraw of their own money. The bank was cheating Sally. 
the powerful oligarchy in government had cheated Sally, but not just her, the entire country. It's, it's been a catastrophe, to put it plainly. But what could Sally do to help her sister? Well, Sally came up with a plan, a very creative and clever plan. She would rob the bank to save her sister. Technically, it wouldn't actually be stealing, though, because she'd simply make them give the money that was in her accounts. It's her money. So uh, she would use a plastic gun. No one would actually be in danger. Maybe she'd go to jail, but her sister's future would be better. Sally's story and the dilemma that it involves absolutely gripped Lebanon for weeks, and in the end, it worked. The bank gave her about $20,000 in cash. She fled before the police were able to catch her. She was able to pay for her sister's surgery, and only after all of this had taken place, then she turned herself in. The question, though, is was Sally a hero or a villain? What do you think? I'm, I'm actually curious. Hero or villain? This is the anti-hero story, right? This is Ocean's 11 and 12 and 13. This is, this is a story that we all intuitively get. Of course, she's a hero, but, you know, the troubling kind. She's the one, she's like a Robin Hood. Good churchy people know that stealing is wrong. And Jesus would never encourage this kind of unethical action, right? And this is precisely why this parable that Jesus tells is so troubling. It's so troubling because we're rooting for the anti-hero in this story. Jesus commends the anti-hero in this story. You could be encouraged if you have found this passage troubling. Be encouraged because you're not alone. You're not the only person who's found this passage troubling. And in fact, Christians have had a difficult time with this passage for, well, all of the history of the church for the last 2,000 years. This passage was a problem for the church all the way back in the year 360 when the Roman emperor, Julian, um, wrote against the Christians using this passage, citing it as proof that these Christians taught their disciples to lie and cheat from this passage. And so most commentaries, when they look at this passage, say that it's one of the most troubling passages that Jesus ever told. They often re recommend actually skipping it in sermons in a church setting. So here we are. How do we use our resources? This is the fundamental question that's being addressed in this passage. And Jesus' main point, I'll just say it right up front so that we can, we can put it on the table. Jesus' main point is this. In light of God's kingdom, followers of Jesus should serve God by being generous and faithful with the material resources that we've been given. I'll say it again. In light of God's kingdom, followers of Jesus should serve God by being generous and faithful with the material resources that we've been given. Now, what does that mean and how do we get that idea from this passage? How do those go together? Jesus makes this point, as Luke tells it, in a way that flips our expectations all around. 
it flips the expectations of the listeners and us and challenges us deeply. So let's take a closer look. We'll go back and look at the passage and then walk our way through it. Um, In this passage, we can note, first of all, that Luke places this particular parable. It's called the parable of the shrewd manager or the dishonest manager or the wasteful manager. The title isn't in the passage, but it's been ascribed by translators and by interpreters over the centuries. It's placed in a scene of confrontation. So this parable is part of a larger section. And the larger section, Jesus has been hanging out with sinners and traitors. This is in chapter 15. The Pharisees had been complaining about it. And Jesus begins telling parables to sort of challenge this idea, to confront their expectations of him hanging out with traitors and sinners. The parables are all quite familiar to us. The lost sheep going after the one when the 99 are in the pen. You remember this one? The lost coin when Jesus seeks out the lost coin or in the parable, this, the owner seeks out the lost coin. The prodigal son, which is probably one of the most well-known passages in all of scripture. And after our text, you have the text about the rich man and Lazarus later on in chapter 16. All of this is this confrontation. This, this context helps us to understand how Jesus was challenged. Luke portrays Jesus challenging the Pharisees, and the disciples are sitting right there. In this passage, though, Jesus turns and tells this particular story to the disciples. And after he does that, we hear, after the section we read, that the Pharisees ridiculed him. They couldn't stand this parable that he had just told. Luke tells us why. Because of their love of money. Knowing all this context helps us to keep the overall theme in view. Economics in God's kingdom. A kingdom in which there are amazing reversals of common sense expectations. No expenses are spared. Grace is lavishly given to those who the listeners might judge as not worthy. And so this brings us out of context into the parable itself, into this parable about the dishonest manager. The story is quite simple. In verse one and two, we get the introduction. Uh, There's a rich man who calls in his manager because his manager is wasting, or he hears that his manager is wasting the rich man's wealth. Whether that accusation is true or not isn't the point. That's why he gets called in. It's the reason the manager gets called in and is about to lose his job. In the parable, the manager doesn't try to defend himself. Uh, Maybe we get the impression because of that that he's guilty as charged. Certainly later in the passage, we see that he does exactly what he's accused of or why he gets called in. Um, But the point is, after that, he asks himself this question. What am I going to do? This is the dilemma he's in. What am I going to do? Um, because this manager is losing uh, this quite prestigious position, he realizes his livelihood is in trouble. He's about to lose his job. It's a really good job. What's he going to do? And in verse 4, we get the brilliant idea that he's come up with. I know what to do so that when I'm out of management, people will welcome me into their homes. In verses 5 and 7, we see how he puts his idea into action. He calls these people in, the debtors, and forgives 
this debt that they owe or decreases the amount that they owe. Um, the amount is significant. It's huge, actually. Uh, historical research helps us to understand this. The total owed, uh, the gallons of oil that it mentions in the passage, this is in gallons, this is around 875 gallons of oil. This would be the produce of a large olive grove, maybe three years of wages of a daily worker who would be working in that grove. So this is a significant amount, 50% of that that's reduced. A thousand bushels of wheat, this would represent around the, the yield of about a, th- a hundred acres of little family uh, farms. The amount reduced would be around nine years of wages for, the, uh, for a daily worker. So this is a significant debt that's reduced. It seems that the debtors in this story would have themselves been quite wealthy. And by reducing their debts, the manager obviously hopes to get into their good graces, get, hopes to receive a reciprocal kind of um, generosity that would, they would someday offer him something significant when he's in need. So you're with me so far, right? This all pretty much makes sense. It's not difficult to understand this, this simple parable. The difficulty comes in verse 8. Why would the rich man commend this dishonest or wasteful manager? Why would he turn around and go, ah, good job? This is the question that, that troubles us. And more than that, why on earth is Jesus commending this kind of dishonesty or this wastefulness? I think that the answer has to do with the effect of this debt relief on the different characters in the story. And to understand this, uh, I find it really helpful to look outside of my own Western perspective, the eyes, the way that I've been taught and, and enculturated to view the world and to look through Eastern eyes. Not all of us have grown up in the West. Some of us here have grown up outside of the United States. And um, there's a particular Arab Christian Bible commentator who commented on this passage in the 11th century. His name is Abu al-Faraj Abdullah ibn Tayyib. I teach about him in some of my classes, and he commented on this passage way back in the 11th century, living in Baghdad, uh, and commenting about this particular passage, helping to make sense of it. And this is what he had to say about this. Um, He said, Looking, kind of thinking about our, our context at that time in, in the area of Iraq and Arab Christians in their context, he said, it's really clear the, the effect of this debt relief. Obviously, for the debtors, it's clear. Their debt is relieved. They're incredibly grateful. Uh, this is a massive reduction in what they owe. They're going to be grateful and happy and re- want to rece- reciprocate. The benefit for the dishonest manager is also clear. He receives uh, reciprocal grace or welcome and hospitality in the future. The effect on the rich man is key, though. According to Ibn Tayyib, in Middle Eastern culture at least, this master would have gained public face for his generosity. His honor and reputation in the community would be increased significantly because he was generous. He had reduced debt that was owed to him. 
He would be seen as magnanimous and generous. Who would not want to do business with this person in the future? If the master tried to change the accounts back, of course, the entire community would look at him as a greedy jerk. How could you change this back? So he's stuck in a winning situation. It's fascinating. No one would want to do business with him in the future if he changed accounts, but because of the dishonest manager's actions, everybody would want to do business with him. He gains face. He gains reputation publicly. And so this incredibly helpful explanation from Ibn Tayyib, this Arab Christian commentator, actually opens the text for us and shows us how through the clever and wise action of this dishonest agent, all three characters in the parable, their status is enhanced. The debtors, the manager, and the owner, the, the, the wise, uh, the, the, the owner of all of, of, all of this debt who, sh- who should have been returned. All three characters in this, the status of all three characters in this parable are enhanced. Everyone wins in different ways. I think if this is the case, and my inclination here is to actually follow Ibn Tayyib's interpretation, how he makes sense of this, the passage would serve to remind listeners, and it should serve to remind us of the day or the feast of Jubilees in the Old Testament. The feast of Jubilees in the Old Testament is a feast that was meant to be celebrated every seven years. During this feast, the people of God were meant to cancel all debts that were held All debt was relieved. Even the land that they had purchased from other tribes or had taken over through debt or whatever was all meant to be returned to the original owners. It was a society-wide reset on debt. It it was meant to be a, a giant equalizer among the people of God, and it demonstrated God's reign among them. This wasteful, dishonest manager is actually, in this parable, ends up being an agent of Jubilee in this telling. Uh, He's an agent of God's reign on earth in this particular little story. He's a symbol of this or a sign of this day of Jubilee in this passage. And so this, this opens up for us and points us to the moral of the story where Jesus Uh, via Luke, through Luke's telling, Jesus um, is explaining uh, the point. And here, uh, you know, it sounds like debt relief. Jesus' explanation of this story has the effect of offending people, the Pharisees. It offends them and they ridicule Jesus because of this. So let's take a look at the key principles that Luke offers listeners, what they're supposed to learn from this. In in verse 8 and then in verse 9, first, Jesus offers this moral. The children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Jesus' disciples, who are often referred to as the children of light, um, they could learn something from acting, learn something about acting shrewdly or prudently. Shrewd kind of sounds, I don't know, I think the, the word has lost its usage. Shrewd in this passage means cleverness or creativity. It's, it's a creative use 
of resources. Cleverness and creativity are not to be despised. In fact, Jesus directly points to this dishonest manager as an example for those who follow him of what it means to act cleverly and creatively. Back to the story at the beginning. Would Jesus say that Sally was a hero or a villain? I don't know for sure. And I'm not saying that you should go rob banks. That's not what I'm saying. But I think from this text, I would wonder if Jesus would look and and kind of smile at Sally's story and say, those armed depositors in Beirut, Lebanon, they're wiser in dealing with banks than the people in churches. And you can learn a thing from them. And we would all kind of go, oh, Jesus, are you sure you want to say that? The Cuban church historian, Justo Gonzalez, explains Jesus' point in this way. This clever agent used the resources he had in the old order of things to gain reward, hospitality, and connection in the new order of things, one that benefits everyone. This language of old order and new order sort of draws our attention to what is called the eschatological dimension of this parable. It's the future dimension. It's not just in the now, in the present. It's the future dimension of what is to come. We're talking about the kingdom of God. And the the manager's bold actions contribute to what is called the common good. Everyone benefited from this agent's or this manager's clever and creative actions. And this points then to the second point of Jesus. It comes in verse 9 where Jesus says, Making friends for themselves by dishonest wealth so that those new friends might welcome them into their eternal homes. Here Jesus is explaining what it was that was so clever and creative about this long-term perspective. He was making friends for himself by means of dishonest wealth so that they would welcome, these new friends would welcome them into eternal homes or that the disciples are to, uh, to make new friends for themselves using dishonest wealth so that those new friends would welcome them into eternal homes. Oh, Jesus, <laughs> you just made it worse. I thought this passage was set. I thought we were clear. Are we supposed to buy our way into heaven? Is that what he's saying? Because that would almost seem like the implication here. What on earth? Of course, this isn't the point. Not that we buy our way into heaven. But instead of using dishonest wealth to exploit others, as the rich do, Jesus' disciples are to use wealth to make friends for for themselves. This is the point. Let's explore this a bit more. Friendships are based on reciprocity, on equality in some sense. It's difficult to have friendship when the other person is the boss, when the other person has power and authority over you. That distance makes it difficult for it to be real friendship. Reciprocity is the key, is one of the keys to genuine friendship. Friendship is built when people forgive each other debts, and this establishes a new kind of reciprocity between them. Uh, Both are enriched. When we look at the wider context of Luke's writings, hospitality and friendship are often provided by those who are considered religious outsiders to the disciples. They're lower down on social hierarchies. 
Luke is very concerned to show that this new Christian movement is one in which equality, one in which equality, the poor and the marginalized, takes center stage. They are included. And I think that's why I would argue here, too, that there's an element of social justice in this passage. Um, Jesus, in Jesus' explanation, those friends, I think, are outsiders. They're the poor and the marginalized, the others for the disciples and for the Pharisees. Jesus is saying that those who are able to be creatively resourceful with the little they have for the common good, these, these ones who are able to be creative with the little they have, they show that they are not selfishly tied to their possessions, but they're able to live with a hopeful future in mind that includes all. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, he was born in Antioch, which is in that area of Turkey where the earthquakes just took place recently. John Chrysostom commented on this principle of wealth and giving in the early church. And he said, for our money, this is, this is a troubling saying, and this principle has worked its way through all of church history. It, it continues to be a principle that Christian, uh, Christians see as an ethic that guides their thinking. John, he wrote, for our money is the Lord's, however we may have gathered it. This is why God allowed you to have more not for you to waste on prostitutes, drink, or fancy food, expensive clothes, and all the other kinds of indolence or waste, but for you to distribute to those in need. The rich man is a kind of steward of the money which is owed for distribution to the poor. He is directed to distribute it to his fellow servants who are in want, for his own goods are not his own, but belong to his fellow servants." You have received more than others have, not to spend it on yourself, but to become a good steward for others as well. Difficult words to hear from John Chrysostom from the fourth century. These are words for us that challenge us in the 21st century. It's the same point that Jesus was making. You cannot serve God and money. You can either serve God with your money by being generous and faithful with what you've been given, or you can serve money as your God. Uncomfortable words, but words that challenge us in how we think about and use our wealth and resources. This parable about money cannot just be spiritualized. It's something we so quickly love to do with sermons and talk from Jesus about material wealth and material things. Luke refuses to let us do that. Luke tells us that Jesus' different way of thinking about and using material wealth is one that challenges us. Uh, in, in view of God's kingdom, we should use our resources in a different way than the world by being generous and faithful with what we've been given. And again, in Luke's telling of this in verse 14, which isn't on the screen, but you all can look at it, it says the Pharisees who loved money heard all this, and ridiculed him. And you know what? In my own strength, I think I would respond exactly the same way to Jesus' words. In my own strength, I want to use my money and my time and my resources on myself 
not on God's purposes. Certainly not on other people unless they're there to help me or to help me get through the things that I have to get through in my to-do list that day. So this, I'm saying you, I'm saying us. Jesus is calling each of us and all of us together to loosen our grip on what is ours in this world and to be generous and faithful with what we've been given to prepare for what is to come. Let's close with a simple prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, open our eyes, soften our hearts, loosen our grip so that we can be generous and creative like you are with what you have given us. Amen.